So what I want to do for you today is, is something maybe a little different than I've done in the past. Um, I think I've, I've always tried to have a big idea when I preach, the one takeaway. Uh, but I'm going to do this a little bit differently this week, which is actually, it's up on the screen for you. Um, and this is the only notes I'm going to give you. Um, I'm, I, I particularly like to just have the big idea and then try to prove it to you through my sermon so that you can write the takeaway. And then whatever you remember during the week, you'll say, hey, what was that he talked about? I don't know, but I have the big idea. So that kind of lets me off the hook a little bit. <laughs> no, just joking. I think it's, I think it's worthwhile. And my goal is to, is to set out to prove this to you. That's, that's going to be the form of the sermon today. Just so you can see where I'm going, if you want to follow in the text, we've been in the Beatitudes now for three weeks. This is the fourth. And this is the Beatitude where Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So my aim today is to talk about what is the nature of this righteousness? What does it look like to hunger and thirst? And ultimately, what does satisfaction mean? So that's where I'm headed. Here's the big idea that I think sums it all up. A mark of being in the kingdom is when we want what God wants, both in our lives and in the world, more than we want anything else. Notice I say a mark. A mark of being in the kingdom is when we want what God wants, both in our lives and in the world, more than we want anything else. So I've talked about our time in Florida. If you are new again, we adopted our two oldest daughters from Florida. I talk about it quite a bit, um, mostly up here. Uh, so here comes another one. Uh, it's, it's, it's not necessarily about the adoption itself, but it does remind me, and I think I thought it fit really well, so I decided to use it. But when we were there, we had about 18, 19 days where we visited our girls every day in a group home. So we were staying in a hotel. They were in a group home. We've I've cried before you in front of all the drama about that. But uh, what would happen is that we would come in every day right around lunchtime into what was called the Home of Hope. And there was a little family gathering room, and we would get together. And so they would bring our two daughters in. At that time, Bella was two and five months, and uh, Charlotte was 11 months. And so they would come in. And the first thing that Bella would say every time we see her, and she had gigantic adenoids that she eventually had to get taken out, she would see us and she'd go, Snack. Okay, that means snack, snack, and like, by the way, if I watch a video of that, it just like crumbles me, it's just so cute to see her, I'm like, oh, those big adenoids in there, it's actually like, it's a medical condition that's not, like, not terrible for you, but like, you can't breathe very well, but I'm like, how cute is that, she can't breathe well, she says, snack, <laughs> it's funny how those things happen. But anyways, what would happen is she would come in with snacks, and so we had got these like baby snacks. You know the Gerber little stars? You familiar with those? If you've got kids, of course. They're in every possible seat cushion, every car. Yes, you've seen them. And chances are, if you've been hungry enough, you've eaten a couple. You want to see what it's like. And so she would come in. We bought them for Charlotte, but Bella would come around and she'd go, I'm just going to say snack now. Is that okay? Yeah. She would say, snack, snack, snack. And of course, we'd be like, oh, here's a couple Gerbers. And then she'd run away, and then jump, here's a couple Gerbers, and we keep, we keep doing that whole thing. So what was interesting for me to see is that the nutrition in this group home was, was atrocious. And I don't mean just like they could have done better. I mean like I'm sure a dietician wasn't in 100 miles of this place. Because sometimes we'd be there for lunch, and here's, this is no joke, a lunch one day that was brought to Bella, who was two and a half. It is two full-size hot dogs, not cut, which in the first place, I'm like, those should probably be cut. I don't know. 
Uh, canned green beans, which, you know, say what you want about those. Um, fruit cup in syrup. Then she had an orange, two Pop-Tarts, and three Oreo cookies. And they're like, here's a nice lunch. How do you grow your brain on that? Right? We all know, like, nutrition's super important. But here's what happened. Bella, for her time in there, became dependent on short rushes of energy. She became a snack mongrel. I'm just going to say it. She became a snack mongrel. And guess what? That behavior followed her when she left. Snack. We're like, steak is a really bread. She's like, snacks. If you're like, guess what? I've got this thing called bread. And she had become, it had become ingrained in her that what she wanted and what she needed were things that weren't really satisfying her. That she took these small bursts and small bites to be hungry. Which is interesting, because most of us are like, you know, especially with certain backgrounds, uh, being, uh, being hungry, like if you go to grandma's house, it's a really bad thing. That's why she gives you like 19 pounds of spaghetti, right? But, it, but we're, we're in a different situation where like we actually have to teach her to like things that are going to be good for her. So sometimes we would say things like, honey, you can't have a snack right now because we're going to have something in three hours, well, three hours to a snack mongrel is a long time. And how many times do you think I heard the word snack in those three hours? Yeah, lots of times where I'm like, oh, here's your, okay, fine, here's your snack. Like sometimes I gave in. I confess I'm not a great parent. Um, sometimes I gave in. No, but here's, here's why I say that. I'm talking about a physical thing. But I, th- I think, and if we observe our culture close enough, I think many of us are stuck in that same cycle. Where right now we snack and we nibble on that in our world which we think is going to nourish us, which we think is going to give us pleasure, which we think is going to give us satisfaction, only to find that when we take and consume of it, 20 minutes later we're left hungry. We are addicted, addicted to instant satisfaction, the allure of it. We love empty carbs. Some of you are counting your carbs. That's why I said carbs and not calories. I know them all, complex, simple, whatever. We reach out our hands and we take something that we think is going to satisfy us only to find out that it turns to ash in our hand. It's all too often something that we deal with. And so Jesus, when he talks about hungering and thirst for righteousness, has something to say about hunger. And I think it's important that we talk about that because I just want to be honest Being hungry is never seen as a positive thing. And so here we have Jesus saying, no, 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 it's blessed to be hungry. It's blessed to be thirsty. And in our world, that teaches us, go for what you want when you want it. Have it your way right away. Ever heard that one? Grab a Snickers, it really satisfies. Ever heard that? What's satisfactory about peanuts and nougat? Which, by the way, anybody know what nougat is? I have no clue. None whatsoever. And if you called me up one day and you're like, Adam, I'm inviting you for dinner and you gave me nougat, I'd be like, what in the world? But Snickers seems to think it's a great thing. We all really want it. You get the point? The allure of this world tells us everything you want is right at hand. All you need to do is grab it. The job that you always wanted, grab it. The relationship that you've always wanted, grab it. The satisfaction that you want now, grab it. See, if happiness 
is our ultimate goal, guess what? It doesn't matter who I have to hurt or what I have to do or what relationship I break to get it. Because if, if my happiness is the ultimate authority, doesn't matter. And see, this is what I love about when Jesus sets up this structure. Notice the structure. If you're, if, open your Bibles if you haven't already. Matthew chapter 5, and you're going to see starting in, in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I want to I focus a little bit on the negative about what it doesn't say. Notice that it doesn't say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessing. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for happiness. The text does not say that. And it's for a reason. Because the quickest way in a biblical worldview to be, to be unhappy is to want happiness more than anything else. The quickest way to be dissatisfied is to put happiness or blessedness above everything else and make that your goal. So what Jesus is saying in this structure is, if you want happiness and you want blessedness, guess what you have to focus on? Not those things. You have to focus on me. You have to focus on righteousness. And once you focus on those things, guess what gets produced? A blessedness, simply because you're desiring the right things. That's the structure as I see it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We can't insert words that aren't there. Which means that some of us, some of us have heard a gospel that says something like this. To be blessed, all you need to do is name the blessing you want. Come before the Lord and say, this is the blessing that I want. And you're going to get it if you have enough faith. That's not the gospel, folks. You know what that is? That's weak. You can't be blessed by wanting to be blessed. That's not how it works in the Bible. Now, this is one, one small scripture, but if we had time, I could break out a couple more, and if you're interested afterwards, we can talk about that. And there's plenty of people who will tell you right here and right now, you're supposed to live the best life you can now, your best life right now. That's what you're supposed to do. Some of us have heard that. Some of us have bought into that, that no delayed satisfaction, no. What I'm supposed to have here is my total fulfillment and satisfaction in this world, and God wants to give that to me. But here we have Jesus saying, you know what's good for you? Maybe going a couple hours before your last snack. Having a hunger pain, not only is it not going to kill you, it's going to reorient you for that which you most need. Namely, him. The Beatitudes are amazing in that they flip upside down for us what we would normally see as conditions that are bad or not wanted. And then in the kingdom perspective, they're blessed. Poverty. No one looks at poverty and is like, love it. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. No one wants to be the person to mourn, but guess what Jesus says? Blessed are those who mourn. Meek, that, 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 that idea that there is someone else larger than me than in charge that, that, that moves my life. 
Man, that really bothers a lot of us. But here we say, blessed are those people who are meek. And here we're saying, no, no, it's not the full people. It's not the people who have everything they want that are blessed. No, 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 it's the people who don't have it right now. It's the people who are hungry and who are thirsty. So when we understand, when we come to the Beatitudes, what we have to understand about them is that it's structured it's structured intentionally. And I want to point your uh, attention to a couple things. And, and, and this is all part of my examination of what righteousness is, so you can track of where I'm going. But one of the cool things about the Beatitudes is, if you look at them, the first four, and I'll just say them really quick, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Aren't they all internal realities? These are internal realities that happen not by our own doing, but what's predicated to be in the kingdom, that you have a new birth. Remember Dan in week one says, if you're going to hear these words, these words are for disciples. That means you're somebody who has experienced new birth. You're made alive in Jesus Christ. Because you're made alive in Jesus Christ, there's inward realities that are starting to happen. You're starting to understand your poverty before him. You're starting to understand that you're mourning over the condition. You wish it was different, but you know you still got a sin nature. Then what happens? You become meek because you understand. Now, you don't put meekness on. You don't say, I'm going to be meek with my wife. You're already the kind of person who's becoming meek because the Holy Spirit is renewing you from the inside out. So what does meek look like? Meek looks like somebody that says, I know who's got a plan for my life, and I will not try to coerce God by any way, but I will stand resolute in his will knowing that he's got a plan for me. Meek. And now here we have hunger and thirst for righteousness. So one thing I am not telling you today, and I want you to hear me very clearly, you cannot cultivate hunger apart from a new birth, a life that's predicated on Jesus Christ and his renewing work through the Holy Spirit in you. You can't do it. You can't leave here and say, well, Adam said I should hunger and thirst for righteousness, so that's what I'm going to do tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. It's predicated on being a disciple. You've got to be a disciple. This one of the, oh man, I'm getting, I'm getting juiced because I got some things I want to say here that are really exciting to me. Inward realities. Once those inward realities happen, you move to the next set of four Beatitudes. You're merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So you see, right, in, right after the, the beatitude we're working on today, hunger and thirst for righteousness, all those internal, internal realities start expressing themselves in external actions. You see how that works? So what has happen through the Holy Spirit as you've come to understand your poverty, as you mourn, as you become meek, and as you learn to hunger and thirst for righteousness, now there's this filling that happens. Because I hunger and thirst for the right, the right things, there's a filling that happens, not now, but there's a filling that's happening that makes me then become more merciful for other people. My life is being renewed. It makes me have purity in mind in my relationships, not only in my marriage, but with other people. And it makes me a peacemaker. So you see this divide right, right there. You see that there's a divide. And it should sound somewhat familiar. The internal and the external. When someone came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest of commands? In Matthew chapter 23, what does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
internal realities. First four Beatitudes. But what else does he say? And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. External actions. You see how that works? So what I'm presenting to you here is basically when Jesus is breaking out these Beatitudes, he's giving you a picture of what it looks like to live the kingdom life. You have to read being a disciple into it. But once you do, what it's saying is that the renovated life that hinges upon Jesus is now empowered and enabled to meet the law. The very two things that says the essence of the law is to love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. When we have a life that's renewed in Jesus, it happens for us. Is it this amazing news? Is this not just the gospel? So he makes for us these internal realities. And these internal realities well up for us, and they fill us so that we then move out into these external things that happen, namely that we become peacemakers, namely that we have a purity in heart towards others, and namely that we uh, show mercy. And there's another reason why I think this. And I want you to just track with me for a second. In so far in the book of Matthew, we started in chapter 5, but we missed a couple things by starting in chapter 5. And what I want to show you are a couple connections not all of them because there is more, but a couple connections that have happened thus far where we find ourselves in, in, in Matthew and with Exodus, the book of Exodus. Okay? And I'm doing this for a purpose because I think it helps us to understand the tone of the Beatitudes. When Jesus was born in the birth narrative, it says that King Herod heard from the wise men that he was the king of the Jews and he was threatened. And because he was threatened, he issued an edict. And he said, all boys, two and under, in Bethlehem, they die. You remember this? Now, Joseph has a vision, and it says, you need to leave here. And so, Jesus is spared. In Exodus, Pharaoh issues a decree that says, every male is supposed to be thrown into the Nile River and die. And we have Moses, who's placed in a basket, and he's found, and he's rescued. That's Similarity number one. And I, and I want to point out to you that I, I, Matthew, I believe, does this on purpose and for a reason. The second, you notice that there's a, a fleeing and then a coming back. So the pattern in the book of Matthew, Joseph gets a vision that says, hey, listen, he's not going to give up and it, it, for now. He's going to continue to try to pursue this king of the Jews and try to kill him. And so what happens? Joseph gets a vision and says, go to Egypt. So he goes from Israel to Egypt until Herod dies and once Herod dies, he goes back to Israel. And if we remember back to the Exodus, what happens with Moses? He also has a fleeing, doesn't he? But his is reverse. He goes from Egypt to Israel, back to Egypt. And then we see Jesus right before his ministry, his professional ministry, or his, 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 his outward ministry as we call it. Forty days and forty nights he's fasted. And the enemy comes to tempt him. And if we remember back to Exodus, when Moses goes up to get the law, 40 days and 40 nights, he's fasted. So we see that there's some connectedness. And, and why would there be a connectedness? Why is Matthew pointing us to this? Well, here's my conclusion. In Exodus chapter 19 and 20, we have God visibly on Mount Sinai in thunderbolt, clouds, lightning, audibly speaking the Ten Commandments to his people. And it's the last time 
1,500 years that that's recorded for us. It never happens again in all of Scripture. But now in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, God incarnate, takes people, and he's going to declare something to them. So he's going to audibly speak to his people. And where does he take them? What's the sermon called? Sermon on the Mount. So when you read Matthew, you know what you're supposed to see? This is the God who rumbles and shakes and lightnings and thunders and declares. And you know what he does? He calls his disciples to him. And his message is blessed. For me this week, that has caused an incredible amount of worship for this reason. You can't read curses into the Beatitudes that aren't there. What that means is Jesus is telling you life in him, life in the kingdom, life that is dependent upon him is a blessing for you. Do not, brothers and sisters, make it a law. The temptation is to say, Jesus said I should be meek, so tomorrow I'm going to be meek. Don't fall temptation to that. The way you should desire meekness is to first and foremost foremost, desire Jesus. You have to desire Jesus and then meekness becomes some of what you are. You can't come to the Beatitudes and say, well, Jesus says to be merciful. So I'm going to be merciful to everybody. There's some value in that. But the mercy that God requires is the mercy that first and foremost flows from him. A life that's renovated and renewed in him. So I tell you this for this reason alone. Don't be discouraged when you hear something that you might not be doing well here. And don't just immediately think, well, i got to fix that one thing. And if I can just fix that one thing, my life is okay. No, it's not just that one thing. It's the primary thing. Namely, it's Jesus. That's what we need. That's what this whole thing is about. Now, if we had more time, I would tell you the other parallels between Matthew and Exodus because they're amazing. But that one this week, it has just been so rich for me. So as we come to the Beatitudes, as we come to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now notice I said sometimes we go to things in our life that don't fulfill us. Sometimes we reach our hand out and say satisfaction now. What I'm not telling you is you're a bad person who immediately needs to stop doing those things because you now need to hunger and thirst for righteousness more. No, what I'm telling you is to the degree in which you hunger and thirst for righteousness is the degree to which you're experiencing life in the kingdom. And I want you to have kingdom life. I don't want you to be hungry and thirsty for hungry and thirst's sake. I want you to hunger and thirst after Jesus. And so that's what this is about. What does this righteousness mean? Now, this righteousness, I think, is important. And I'm going to let the text speak for itself. And and there's two places for which I want to talk about righteousness. See, Dan, last week when he was talking about meekness, had the opportunity to go to Psalm 37 and say, we think that he was uh, expounding upon Psalm 37. And that's how we get our definition of meekness. But today, how do I get a definition of righteousness? Well, two texts. The first is in verse 10, where it said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Okay? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, notice I've already told you about the internal reality split with those four and then the next one. But notice what cap ends those four. In verse 5, We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And in verse 10, we're being persecuted for righteousness. Okay? So does it make sense to be persecuted for righteousness that doesn't have any outward actions to it? 
Who wants to persecute you for something you just believe internally but doesn't make them uncomfortable? No, the reason that you are persecuted is because you're acting a certain way to other people and it makes them uncomfortable. Either it challenges their worldview or it challenges their religious assumptions or it challenges the fact that they can't be their own God. And so when I'm talking about righteousness, it seems to me that the text would leave it open to say, well, if we're supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness in verse 6, and in verse 10 we're being persecuted for that righteousness, maybe the righteousness that he's talking about is, verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, I have to say this, and I've said it a couple times, I'm going to say this again. The righteousness ultimately that we're talking about is, is, is from and is in the person of Jesus. Okay, So we, we know that we cannot find righteousness apart from him. But I think that the text is, is telling us the righteousness here that we're talking about is a little bit different. Yes, it's one arm around Jesus. Absolutely. You have to have Jesus in order to have righteousness. But this is also the works and the life that flows from righteousness. See, this is sanctification. This is as the Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus as he's renovating our inward life, so we become to desire and love the things that Jesus wants. My big idea, one of the marks of being in the kingdom is when we want what God wants. That's what I'm talking about. The righteousness is wanting what God wants, not only in my life that we would choose him, but also in the world, that we would be people who are capable of peace, that we, would be, that we are people who are capable of giving mercy, that we're people who have purity in heart in our relationships and how we deal with people. So that's one text that seems to suggest that righteousness could be, in this particular sense, at least connected with some of the outward signs of righteousness as well. And then, and then we see the next time the word righteousness is used in, is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I'm going to read that for you. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a tough one. Now, if you're a disciple sitting under Jesus, you hear the word Pharisee and righteousness much different than we do. See, how many of you in here, by the raise of hand, just love the Pharisees? Yet no hands went up, right? Because in our world, we have been taught through, through church and through enough sermons to be like, even if we haven't been in church very long, we're like, Pharisees are bad. Boo to Pharisees. And so when we read something in the, in the text that says your righteousness has to be more than those people, we're like, of course it does. They're bums. They're scoundrels. But the disciples in their world would not have heard it that way. See, the Pharisees then, th these were the people who knew and understood and taught all of Israel about righteousness. So they would have been like, wait, what you're telling me Jesus is the righteousness that I'm supposed to have in order to be in this kingdom life is more than what these people professionally do as a vocation. That would be astonishing to them. That would have, that would have definitely hit them a certain way. And now while I don't have time to fully get into all of the, uh, the different pieces that are going to come after Matthew 20, I'm going to focus on one and just so you can see sort of the intent because Jesus is going to let out an argument now of what he means about this. It says, you've heard it said, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but paraphrase. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I'm telling you, people who are in the kingdom are the kind of people who don't get angry in the first place. And instead of anger, 
seek to have mercy on their brother. Okay, so, so here's what happened in the Pharisees' world. You could get as close to the line without going over and still be righteous. So you could want to kill a whole bunch of dudes. You could even plan to kill a whole bunch of dudes, but you're not the one who actually kills, kills the dudes, and you're still righteous. You could literally hate someone to the point where you never want to see them again, and you would like trip them in the mud if they went by. You just like hate them. Everything about you, you talk terribly about them. You, you, just, you, just, you just seethe when you think about them. But as long as I didn't murder them, it was still pretty good. I'm doing okay. Or, or go down to lust. It says, hey, listen, the, the law says you're not, you're not supposed to have an affair. Well, they're like, well, I won't have an affair, but I'll oogle a million women. What's the problem with that? You know, I didn't, I'm not actually doing it. It's just looking. And guess what? As long as I don't go over that line, that's fine. That's Pharisee righteousness. How close to the line can I get and still keep it? How can I have an external keeping of the law? And what is Jesus saying? Unless your righteousness surpasses. So doesn't it stand to reason? He's not saying, what more can you obey? You've got to get out of that system altogether. You've got to be renovated in heart. And when you're renovated in heart, your righteousness will surpass that of the Pharisees because it's the righteousness of Christ. And you have it. It's yours in the kingdom. And so I think the righteousness in the Beatitudes that Jesus is speaking of is both the righteousness that the disciples have through him, but also the acts of righteousness, that we're becoming people who want to exhibit righteous acts in our own life and in the world. I think that's the argument that Scripture makes. And I think if you were to look at the whole biblical narrative, that makes sense. When have you ever seen you can just believe only the right things, but there's never any action that follows. I think James wrote a whole book about that. I think First Peter has a lot to say about that. It's always the life of the disciples marked both by a complete and ruthless trust in Jesus and a life that is now manifesting these outward expressions through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. The Beatitudes are basically like a reframing of all of that biblical theology, and it's a beautiful thing. That's righteousness. That's what I think. So if that's, if, that's what righteousness, if that's what righteousness is, wanting what God wants for ourselves and in the world, what is hunger and what is thirst? Now, we might think, well, I know what hungry and thirsty is. But I, I've come up with a couple descriptors that I think might help us. I was on a plane going on a trip. Well, there were no kids involved, so I'm just going to call it a vacation. <laughs> I don't even remember where we were going, but it was my wife and I and I had gone through security with a water bottle in my backpack. Yep, I know. I didn't try to smuggle it. It just was a mistake. And so we were a little bit late on time. And so instead of being able to chug that water down, I had to throw that beautiful Dasani, which in the airports, that's about all they have. Or it just says SFO airport. I don't want that water. I like the Dasani kind. Anyways, I had to throw it in the trash can. And I go through security, and I'm sitting waiting to get on the plane, and for whatever reason, I don't buy another bottle of water. Who knows why? It could have been that we were out of time. Again, I had no kids. I was loving life. I can't remember everything I thought back then except this is great. But somewhere in the line to give my ticket, a thirst started to arise. It was just started down here. 
kind of in the throat where I'm like, oh, man, yeah, water, water could be nice. I bet it could quench that. And by the time I get in my seat, I'm kind of like, hmm, this is kind of really, this is really developed into quite the thirst. This is really, this is really getting to be something. And by the time the flight even took off, by the time the dude even pressed the accelerator, did they call it accelerator? Anybody a pilot? The gas? I don't know. Jet boosters? Whatever they press, that lever in the movies. By the time they did that, I was in full mode, I was in full panic mode. I needed to drink something, and I needed to drink it fast. Now, my wife is gorgeous, beautiful lady. And most of the time, she can distract me from anything that woes me. I just walk in bad day, and I'm like, hey, I'm so, I'm not mad anymore. Look at you. But it didn't work in this case. No, my thirst was way too strong. And uh, she was out with the baby in first service, so I got to tell this and still have points. But my wife didn't help. Being there with my wife on a vacation, knowing we're about to go somewhere, didn't satiate my thirst at all. Matter of fact, it didn't help me. It didn't get my mind off it. All I could think about was, Man, I'm really thirsty. Man, I'm really thirsty. Man, I'm really thirsty. Some, like, it didn't matter what was happening. They're showing me how to put on the seat buckle. I'm like, mm, I wish you could hurry that up and then bring your beverage service through. That's what you should do. Bring the beverage service. That would be really helpful. I'm thirsty. And that didn't work. Then we bring games on every trip. We bring like rook cards and we bring dice and we do all these things. And so I thought, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to just start playing games and get my mind off it. You know, My wife didn't work. That's a bummer. We'll go into... <laughs> Don't press pause back there. No. No. So then I think we're going to play some games. And, and, and that doesn't work either. The, the moment we roll like one thing and I don't get Yahtzee, I'm like, it's not helping. I'm just thirsty. And, but here's the thing about thirst. It doesn't stay the same, does it? When you're thirsty, you, all you can think about is like, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It's so dry in there. It's like, it's like a dark basement, but, but there's no actual water in there. It's just... It's just dry and arid, and you can't swallow. Hold on. I brought one on purpose because I knew as soon as I talked about it. No, we're good. And so then the final thing that I use, iPad, right? iPad is going to take my mind off, and I had downloaded some cool shows. I was going to binge watch. I'm on vacation. Mind you, I'm on vacation. This should be fun. I have an iPad. I turn it on, and I'm like, oh. It did not change. All I could think was, I heard the bell go off that says that we're at the altitude for the beverage cart to start walking, and I know I'm in the back of the plane, which means my beverage used to go first, but there you are over there starting in the front. This airline is terrible. And you know, some airlines like to walk through with a bottle of water before beverage service. Why aren't you like that? I could really use one of those things right now. And I was, I was gone. Now my wife can tell you when I get into these modes, it's not easy for me to get back. I was like incredibly thirsty. It dominated every single thought that I had. Until the beverage cart lady came by and I was like, water with ice, please. It was very nice to her. I didn't, I wasn't mad. And then when I drank it, I'm like, oh, happy vacation. Isn't that funny how that happens? You got this incredible thirst and the moment you get a little water, you're like, oh, great, that was awesome. And it all went away. But a mark of a thirsty person is a single-mindedness on quenching that thirst. When you're really thirsty, no substitute works. I could try to swallow a gallon of spit. It wasn't working. I didn't have any left. I needed a Fiji water. 
Triple purified by volcanic soil. That's what I needed. Nothing worked. I was single-minded. You see, my brother's an electrician apprentice, and I think this kind of hammers home a little bit of what it looks like. And when he became an electrician's apprentice, he really wanted to keep this job. It was really important for him to keep this apprenticeship, and it was multiple years. And so what we noticed with him is decisions that he started making in his life all started filtering through being an apprentice. What kind of shoes do you buy? Well, why do you spend $100 on regular sneakers when you're going to get work boots anyways? So I'm just going to buy work boots. Notice how that happens? His, apprentice, his apprenticeship is now informing all the decisions that he makes. Are you going to stay up late and go to that party? Well, if I stay up late and go to that party, chances are I might show up late. I don't want to show up late because I don't want to ruin my apprenticeship, and so I'm going to go to bed. That's the kind of single-mindedness that I'm talking about. We are apprenticing under Jesus. It's discipleship. We're an apprentice. So every decision that we're making should be single-minded and focused in that what does this mean and what does this say about my being a disciple? What does being a disciple to Jesus mean in this? And that means there's no part of your life that's out of bounds for that. How should I act as a disciple in my marriage? How should I act as a disciple in my thought life? How should I act as a disciple? How should I act as... That's, that's the single-mindedness. That's the single focus that I think thirst conveys for us. We're apprenticing. We want every decision. So it doesn't mean that we're just so dominated by thirst that we're no good for the world. That would go completely contrary to what I just argued. Instead, it's a thirst for that which really satisfies. And no substitutes will do. What does hunger look like? Well, we're told about a story of the prodigal son in the Gospels. And this prodigal son, he takes from his father his inheritance early. And he goes out, he spends it, squanders it, and he finds himself hungry. Now, when he finds himself hungry, does anybody remember what he eats? The, the scraps. He's literally in the pig trough. Okay? And so he's eating the pig trough. Now, that's a certain kind of hungry, but guess what happens? When he's really starving, when he's, when he's really at the end, when the hunger really gives in, guess what it makes him do? Get up and go back to dad. See, hunger, a little bit of hunger, a little hunger pain might make you reach for something, but a desire, a, a, a true hunger motivates you to action because you want to be fed. And so it means you get up and you go and you walk. He got up, he went, he walked back to his father because what did he really need? He needed what his father had. That's, I think, the, the understanding of hunger here. You see, Jesus says things like, if you would have asked me for living waters, I would have given it to you. Notice how he doesn't say, just sit right there and let me splash you with some living water. See, when you're hungry, you're motivated and you come to Jesus. You come. You get up and go. So no one can tell me from their couch cushion how hungry they are if they don't put their feet on the pavement and walk. So people who will tell me, man, I'm just so disillusioned with the Christian life and I'm not in any church whatsoever and I just sit here on my couch and I just hope that it will just rain down. You got it backwards. Get off the couch, buckle up your shoes, and walk. If you're hungry enough, you're going to go. That's... That's, that's, that's the intent. When you're hungry for the Lord, you come to him. You go. 
And I think the thing that's true of both hunger and thirst is that there's a humility that comes along with it. Because you recognize that you can't solve it. It's not within yours to fix it. Notice, I can't produce water and I can't produce bread. It comes from outside myself. I have to rely on on someone else for that. And so I can't be proud when I'm eating and drinking, assuming as if it was my hard work or my effort that did it. No, it's the Lord who did it. So the intent, when we think about humility in, in, in relation to hunger and thirst is understanding that you cannot cultivate it on your own. That it's a Holy Spirit desire and it's meant to be that way and it's for those who have a renovated and renewed life. So finally, satisfaction. See, what's interesting is so far I've talked to you about hunger and I've talked to you about thirsting and I've talked to you about righteousness but we have a future. We have a future promise in here and that's satisfaction. Now, Here's where I'm going to get a little bit controversial. You're not supposed to be satisfied right now. In this world, there will come, there will come moments and times in which you feel like, man, God is enough for me. And, and those times are amazing and they're beautiful. But once you know God is enough for you, it doesn't actually satisfy you here in this world. What does it do? It actually makes you more hungry and it makes you more thirsty because your, your heart and your spirit cries out to be reunited with the God who will one day Quench your thirst and give you food. What does Jesus say in the book of John? Both that he is the fountain of living waters and that he's bread. And so in this world, when it says that we're going to be satisfied, you can't read present satisfaction into that. What that is is I'm hungering and thirsting after this righteousness, and God sometimes it makes me more like Jesus. That's this whole process of sanctification. As I become more sanctified, I see the goodness of God. I see a behavior in me change that makes me want to glorify God. And when I do that, you know what that makes me? It makes me hunger and thirst more. And when I hunger and thirst more, then it results in a, in a greater hunger. And then I get a little picture of being renovated. And then it gives me a little bit more. And then I get hungry until one day I stand before the king who's the bread and the water. And I eat and I drink. Isn't that what it says in Isaiah? Come, And eat what you don't have money to buy. Get the milk. Get the wine. And that happens here. That happens with Jesus. It doesn't happen here in this world. So when we talk about satisfaction, it's delayed. But it doesn't mean that woe is us, we're so hungry. Because there's a word that comes before it, and the word is blessed. In the kingdom, you're blessed. You will have a happiness if you know hunger. If you know hunger in this world, if you have a desire and a longing that nothing seems to fit, that's most likely if you're a disciple from the Holy Spirit saying, look to God alone to feel that. I think that's what this, is, this whole beatitude is about. And I love it. It makes me really happy. So what's the takeaway? Well, The takeaway is that you can always change your diet. If you're somebody who says, yeah, Adam, I'm a snack mongrel. I go from one empty calorie to the next. Hand out, eat, consume, it doesn't fill me. Hand out, eat, consume, it doesn't fill me. I'm going from one treat to the next and I'm missing the meal. You can change your diet. But you know what your meal's going to consist of? Just Jesus. 
You don't have the effort to do it on your own. You have to humbly come before the Lord and say, you need to change me, Lord. Can you change me? Will you change me? I want to be changed. And so as I'm, I'm going to invite David and the, and the band up um, as I close here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read for you a passage from, um, from Isaiah. It's chapter 2. And really, this, is, this has been my meditation um, since we've been in this series. And um, I just want to read it to you because this, I think this is, the, this is the right way to end. And it's also my prayer for us that we, that we see this, um, we see clearly through this text what God is doing in the Beatitudes and what Jesus is saying. And so I'm going to read it for you, and then they'll sing. It starts... Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. And that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. And shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. And this is the encouragement. O house of Jacob. Come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, as we hear Jesus speaking these, these beatitudes and as we have four more weeks, let's walk in the light of the Lord.